0: Chapter Seven of The Nebulicote by John Mead Faulkner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Seven Miss Euphemia Jolliffe devoted Saturday afternoons to St. Sepulchre's Dorcas Society. The meetings were held in a classroom of the Girls' National School, and there a band of devoted females gathered week by week to make garments for the poor. If there was in Cologne some threadbare gentility, and a great deal of middle-class struggling, there was happily little actual poverty, as it is understood in great towns. Thus the poor, to whom the clothes made by the Dorcas Society were ultimately distributed, could sometimes afford to look the gift-horse in the mouth, and to lament that good material had been marred in the making. "'They wept,' the organist said, when they showed the coats and garments that Dorcas made, because they were so badly cut. But this was a libel.' For there were many excellent needlewomen in the society, and among the very best was Miss Euphemia Jolliffe. She was a staunch supporter of the church, and, had her circumstances permitted, would have been a scripture-reader or at least a district visitor. But the world was so much with her in the shape of domestic necessities at Bellevue Lodge as to render parish work impossible, and so the Dorcas meeting was the only systematic philanthropy in which she could venture to indulge but in the discharge of this duty she was regularity personified. Neither wind nor rain, snow nor heat, sickness nor amusement, stopped her, and she was to be found each and every Saturday afternoon from three to five in the National School. If the Dorcas Society was a duty for the little old lady, it was also a pleasure, one of her few pleasures, and perhaps the greatest. She liked the meetings, because on such occasions she felt herself to be the equal of her more prosperous neighbours. It is the same feeling that makes the half-witted attend funerals and church services. At such times they feel themselves to be for once on an equal footing with their fellow men. All are reduced to the same level. There are no speeches to be made, no counts to be added up, no counsels to be given, no decisions to be taken. All are as fools in the sight of God. At the Dorcas meeting Miss Jolliffe wore her best things, with the exception only of headgear, for the wearing of her best bonnet was a crowning grace reserved exclusively for the Sabbath. Her wardrobe was too straightened to allow her best to follow the shifting seasons closely. If it was bought as best for winter, it might have to play the same role also in summer, and thus it fell sometimes to her lot to wear alpaca in December, or, as on this day, to be adorned with a fur necklet, when the weather asked for muslin yet in her best she always felt fit to be seen and when it came to cutting out or sewing there were none that excelled her most of the members greeted her with a kind word for even in a place where envy hatred and malice walked the streets arm in arm from sunrise to sunset miss euphema had few enemies lying and slandering and speaking evil of their fellows formed a staple occupation of the ladies of Cologne, as of many another small town. And to Miss Jolliffe, who was foolish and old-fashioned enough to think evil of no one, it had seemed at first the only drawback of these delightful meetings that a great deal of such high spiced talk was to be heard at them. But even this fly was afterwards removed from the amber, for Mrs. Bullteal, the brewer's lady, who wore London dresses and was much the most fashionable person in Cologne, proposed that some edifying book should be read aloud on Dorcas afternoons to the assembled workers. It was true that Mrs. Flint said she only did so because she thought she had a fine voice, but however that might be, she proposed it, and no one cared to run counter to her. So Mrs. Bulteel read properly religious stories, of so touching a nature that an afternoon seldom passed without her being herself dissolved in tears, and evoking sympathetic sniffs and sobs, from such as wished to stand in her good books. If Miss Jolliffe was not herself so easily moved by imaginary sorrow, she set it down to some lack of loving-kindness in her own disposition, and mentally congratulated the others on their superior sensitiveness. Miss Jolliffe was at the Dorcas meeting, Mr. Charnel was walking by the riverside, Mr. Westray was with the masons on the roof of the transept. Only Anastasia Jolliffe was at Bellevue Lodge, when the front doorbell bell rang. When her aunt was at home, Anastasia was not allowed to wait on the gentleman, nor to answer the bell. But her aunt being absent, and there being no one else in the house, she duly opened one leaf of the great front door, and found a gentleman standing on the semicircular flight of steps outside. That he was a gentleman she knew at a glance, for she had a flair for such useless distinctions, though the genus was not sufficiently common at Cullern, to allow her much practice in its identification near home. It was, in fact, the stranger of the tenor voice, and such is the quickness of woman's wit, that she learnt in a moment as much concerning his outward appearance as the organist and the choir-men and the clerk had learnt in an hour, and more besides, for she saw that he was well-dressed. There was about him a complete absence of personal adornment. He wore no rings and no scarf-pin, even his watch-chain was only of leather. His clothes were of so dark a grey as to be almost black. But Miss Anastasia of Jolliffe knew that the cloth was good, and the cut of the best. She had thrust a pencil into the pages of Northanger Abbey to keep the place while she answered the bell, and as the stranger stood before her, it seemed to her he might be a Henry Tilney, and she was prepared, like a Catherine Morland, for some momentous announcement when he opened his lips. Yet there came nothing very weighty from them. He did not even inquire for lodgings, as she had half hoped that he would. "'Does the architect in charge of the works at the church lodge here? Is, is Mr. Westray at home?' was all he said. "'He does live here,' she answered, "'but is out just now, and we do not expect him back till six. "'I think you will probably find him at the church, if you desire to see him.' "'I have just come from the minister, but could see nothing of him there.' "'It served the stranger right that he should have missed the architect,' and been put to the trouble of walking as far as Bellevue Lodge, for his inquiries must have been very perfunctory. If he had taken the trouble to ask either organist or clerk, he would have learnt at once where Mr. Westray was. I wonder if you would allow me to write a note. If you could give me a sheet of paper, I should be glad to leave a message for him. Anastasia gave him a glance from head to foot, rapid as an instantaneous exposure. Tramps! A permanent bug-beer to the ladies of Cologne, and a proper dread of such miscreants had been instilled into Anastasia Jolliffe by her aunt. It was, moreover, a standing rule of the house that no strange men were to be admitted on any pretence unless there was some man-lodger at home to grapple with them if occasion arose. But the glance was sufficient to confirm her first verdict. He was a gentleman. There surely could not be such a thing as gentleman tramps. So she answered, Oh, certainly! and showed him into Mr. Charnel's room, because that was on the ground floor. The visitor gave a quick look round the room. If he had ever been in the house before, Anastasia would have thought he was trying to identify something that he remembered. But there was little to be seen except an open piano, and the usual litter of music-books and manuscript paper. "'Thank you,' he said. "'Can I write here? Is this Mr. Westray's room?' "'No. Another gentleman lodges here.' but you can use this room to write in he is out and would not mind in any case he is a friend of mr westray i had rather write in mr westray's room if i may you see i have nothing to do with this other gentleman and it might be awkward if he came in and found me in his apartment it seemed to anastasia that the information that the room in which they stood was not mr westray's had in some way or other removed an anxiety from the stranger's mind there was a faint and indefinable indication of relief in his manner, however much he professed to be embarrassed at the discovery. It might have been, she thought, that he was a great friend of Mr. Westray, and had been sorry to think that his room should be littered and untidy, as Mr. Charnel certainly was, and so was glad when he found out his mistake. "'Mr. Westray's room is at the top of the house,' she said deprecatingly. "'It is no trouble to me. I assure you to go up,' he answered." Anastasia hesitated again for an instant. If there were no gentleman tramps, perhaps there were gentleman burglars, and she hastily made a mental inventory of Mr. Westray's belongings, but could think of nothing among them likely to act as an incentive to crime. Still, she would not venture to show a strange man to the top of the house when there was no one at home but herself. The stranger ought not to have asked her. He could not be a gentleman after all, or he would have seen how irregular was such a request— unless he had indeed some particular motive for wishing to see Mr. Westray's room. The stranger perceived her hesitation, and read her thoughts easily enough. "'I beg your pardon,' he said. "'I ought, of course, to have explained who it is who has the honour of speaking to you. I am Lord Blandamer, and wish to write a few words to Mr. Westray on questions connected with the restoration of the church. Here is my card.' There was probably no lady in the town— that would have received this information with as great composure as did Anastasia Jolliffe. Since the death of his grandfather, the new Lord Blandamer had been a constant theme of local gossip and surmise. He was a territorial magnate. He owned the whole of the town, and the whole of the surrounding country. His stately house of Fording could be seen on a clear day from the Minster Tower. He was reputed to be a man of great talents, and distinguished appearance. He was not more than forty, and he was unmarried. Yet no one had seen him since he came to man's estate. It was said he had not been in Cologne for twenty years. There was a tale of some mysterious quarrel with his grandfather, which had banished the young man from his home, and there had been no one to take his part, for both his father and mother were drowned when he was a baby. For a quarter of a century he had been a wanderer abroad, in France and Germany, in Russia and Greece, in Italy and Spain. He was believed to have visited the East, to have fought in Egypt, to have run blockades in South America, to have found priceless diamonds in South Africa. He had suffered the awful penances of the Fakirs. He had fasted with the monks of Mount Athos. He had endured the silence of La Trappe. Men said that the ul Islam had himself bound the green turban round Lord Blandaber's head. He could shoot, he could hunt, he could fish, he could fight, he could sing, he could play all instruments, he could speak all languages as fluently as his own. He was the very wisest and the very handsomest, and, some hinted, the very wickedest man that ever lived. Yet no one had ever seen him. Here was indeed a conjunction of romance for Anastasia, to find so mysterious and distinguished a stranger face to face with her, alone, under the same roof yet she showed none of these hesitations, tremblings, or faintings that the situation certainly demanded. Martin Jolliffe, her father, had been a handsome man all his life, and had known it. In youth he prouded himself on his good looks, and in old age he was careful of his personal appearance. Even when his circumstances were at their worst he had managed to obtain well-cut clothes. They were not always of the newest, but they sat well on his tall and upright figure. Gentleman Jolliffe, people called him, and laughed, though perhaps something less ill-naturedly than was often the case in Cologne, and wondered whence a farmer's son had gotten such manners. To Martin himself an aristocratic bearing was less an affectation than a duty. His position demanded it, for he was in his own eyes a blandemer kept out of his rights. It was his good appearance, even at five-and-forty, which induced Miss Hunter of the Grove to run away with him though Colonel Hunter promised to disown her if she ever married so far beneath her. She did not, it is true, live long to endure her father's displeasure, but died in giving birth to their first child. Even this sad result had failed to melt the Colonel's heart. Contrary to all precedents of fiction, he would have nothing to do with his little granddaughter, and sought refuge from so untenable a position in removing from Galerne. Nor was Martin himself a man to feel a parent's obligations too acutely, so that the child was left to be brought up by Miss Jolliffe, and to become an addition to her cares, but much more to her joys. Martin Jolliffe considered that he had amply fulfilled his responsibilities in christening his daughter Anastasia, a name which De Brett shows to have been borne for generations by ladies of the Blandamer family, and having given so striking a proof of affection, he started off on one of those periodic wanderings which were connected with his genealogical researches, and was not seen again in Killern for a luster. For many years afterwards Martin showed but little interest in the child. He came back to Killern at intervals, but was always absorbed in his efforts to establish a right to the nebulae coat, and content to leave the education and support of Anastasia entirely to his sister. It was not till his daughter was fifteen that he exercised any paternal authority, but on his return from a long absence about that period he pointed out to miss jolliffe senior that she had shamefully neglected her niece's education and that so lamentable a state of affairs must be remedied at once miss jolliffe most sorrowfully admitted her shortcomings and asked martin's forgiveness for her remissness nor did it ever occur to her to plead an excuse that the duties of a lodging-house and the necessity of providing sustenance for herself and anastasia made serious inroads on the time that ought, no doubt, to have been devoted to education, or that the lack of means prevented her from engaging teachers to supplement her own too limited instruction. She had, in fact, been able to impart to Anastasia little except reading, writing, and arithmetic, some geography, a slight knowledge of Miss Magnall's questions, a wonderful proficiency with a needle, an unquenchable love of poetry and fiction, a charity for her neighbours which was rare enough in Colerne and a fear of God, which was sadly inconsistent with the best Blandamer traditions. "'The girl was not being brought up as became a Blandamer,' Martin had said. "'How was she to fill her position when she became the Honourable Anastasia? "'She must learn French, not such rudiments as Miss Jolliford taught her, "'and it traversed his sister's "Du de la de l'apostrophe day with a laugh that flushed her withered cheeks with crimson, and made Anastasia cry as she held her aunt's hand under the table.' not that kind of French, but something that would really pass muster in society. And music, she must study that!' And Miss Jolliffe blushed again, as she thought very humbly of some elementary duets in which she played a bass for Anastasia, till household work and gout conspired to rob her knotty fingers of all pliancy. It had been a great pleasure to her, the playing of these duets with her niece, but they must, of course, be very poor things, and quite out of date now, for she played them when she was a child herself and on the very same piano in the parlour at Whitcomb. So she listened with attention while Martin revealed his scheme of reform, and this was nothing less than the sending of Anastasia to Mrs. Howard's boarding-school at the county-town of Carysbury. The project took away his sister's breath, for Mrs. Howard's was a finishing school of repute, to which only Mrs. Bullteal among Cologne ladies could afford to send her daughters. But Martin's high-minded generosity knew no limits, it was no use making two bites at a cherry, what had to be done had to better be done quickly. And he clinched the argument by taking a canvas bag from his pocket, and pouring out a little heap of sovereigns on to the table. Miss Jolliffe's wonder as to how her brother had become possessed of such wealth was lost in admiration of his magnanimity, and if for an instant she thought wistfully of the relief that a small portion of these riches would bring to the poverty-stricken menage at Bellevue Lodge, she silenced such murmurings in a burst of gratitude for the means of improvement that Providence had vouchsafed to Anastasia. Martin counted out the sovereigns on the table. It was better to pay in advance, and so make an impression in Anastasia's favour, and to this Miss Jolliffe agreed with much relief, for she had feared that before the end of the term Martin would be off on his travels again, and that she herself would be left to pay. So Anastasia went to Carisbury, and Miss Jolliffe broke her own rules and herself incurred a number of small debts because she could not bear to think of her niece going to school with so meagre an equipment as she then possessed, and yet had no ready money to buy better. Anastasia remained for two half-years at Carisbury. She made such progress with her music that, after much wearisome and lifeless practising, she could stumble through Thalberg's variation on the air of Home Sweet Home. But in French she never acquired the true Parisian accent, and revert at times to the Du de la day of her earlier teaching though there is no record that these short cuppings were ever a serious drawback to her in after-life besides such opportunities of improvement she enjoyed the privilege of association with thirty girls of the upper middle classes a net of the tree of knowledge of good and evil the fruit of which had hitherto escaped her notice at the end of her second term however she was forced to forgo these advantages for Martin had left Cologne without making any permanent provision for his daughter's schooling, and there was in Mrs Howard's prospectus a law, inexorable as that of gravity, that no pupil should be permitted to return to the academy whose account for the previous term remains unsettled. Thus Anastasia's schooling came to an end. There was some excuse put forward that the heir of Carysbury did not agree with her, and she never knew the real reason till nearly two years later, by which time Miss Jolliffe's industry and self-denial had discharged the greater part of Martin's obligation to Mrs. Howard. The girl was glad to remain at Cullern, for she was deeply attached to Miss Jolliffe. But she came back much older in experience, her horizons had widened, and she was beginning to take a more perspective view of life. These enlarged ideas bore fruit both pleasant and unpleasant, for she was led to form a juster estimate of her father's character, when he next returned she found it difficult to tolerate his selfishness and abuse of his sister's devotion. That this should be so was a cause of great grief to Miss Jolliffe. Though she herself felt for her niece a love which had in it something of adoration, she was at the same time conscientious enough to remember that a child's first duty should be towards its parents. Thus she forced herself to lament that Anastasia should be more closely attached to her than to Martin, And if there were times when she could not feel properly dissatisfied that she possessed the first place in her niece's affections, she tried to atone for this frailty by sacrificing opportunities of being with the girl herself, and using every opportunity of bringing her into her father's company. It was a fruitless endeavour, as every endeavour to cultivate affection where no real basis for it exists must eternally remain fruitless. Martin was wearied by his daughter's society, for he preferred to be alone and set no store by her except as a cooking, house-cleaning, and clothes-mending machine, and Anastasia resented this attitude, and could find moreover no interest in the torn peerage which was her father's Bible, or in the genealogical research and jargon about the nebily coat which formed the staple of his conversation. Later on, when he came back for the last time, her sense of duty enabled her to tend and nurse him with exemplary patience, and to fulfil all these offices of affection, which even the most tender filial devotion could have suggested she tried to believe that his death brought her sorrow and not relief and succeeded so well that her aunt had no doubts at all upon the subject martin jolliffe's illness and death had added to anastasia's experience of life by bringing her into contact with doctors and clergymen and it was no doubt this training and the association with the superior classes afforded by mrs howard's academy "'that enabled her to stand the shock of Lord Blandover's announcement "'without giving any more perceptible token of embarrassment than a very slight blush. of course there is no objection,' she said, "'to your writing in Mr. Westray's room. I will show you the way to it.' "'She accompanied him to the room, and, having provided writing materials, "'left him comfortably ensconced in Mr. Westray's chair. "'As she pulled the door to behind her in going out, something prompted her to look round.' Perhaps it was merely a girl's light fancy. Perhaps it was that indefinite fascination which the consciousness that we are being looked at sometimes exercises over us. But as she looked back, her eyes met those of Lord Blandaver, and she shut the door sharply, being annoyed at her own foolishness. She went back to the kitchen, for the kitchen of the hand of God was so large that Miss Jolliffe and Anastasia used part of it for their sitting-room, took the pencil out of Northanger Abbey, and tried to transport herself to Bath. Five minutes ago she had been in the grand pump-room herself, and knew exactly where Mrs. Allen and Isabella Thorpe and Edward Morland were sitting, where Catherine was standing, and what John Thorpe was saying to her when Tilney walked up. But, alas, Anastasia found no re The lights were put out, the pump-room was in darkness. A sad change had have happened in five minutes, but no doubt the charmed circle had dispersed in a huff On finding that they no longer occupied the first place in Miss Anastasia Jolliffe's interest. And indeed, she missed them the less because she had discovered that she herself possessed a wonderful talent for romance and had already begun the first chapter of a thrilling story. Nearly half an hour passed before her aunt returned, and in the interval, Miss Austin's knights and dames had retired still farther into the background, and Miss Anastasia's hero had entirely monopolized the stage. It was twenty minutes past five when Miss Jolliffe, senior, returned from the Dorcas meeting. "'Precisely twenty minutes past five, as she remarked many times subsequently, with that factitious importance which the ordinary mind attaches to the exact moment of any epoch-making event. "'Is the water boiling, my dear?' she asked, sitting down at the kitchen table. "'I should like to have tea to-day before the gentlemen come in, if you do not mind. The weather is quite oppressive, and the schoolroom was very close.' "'because we only have one window open. "'Poor Mrs. Bulteel is so subject to take cold from draughts, "'and I very nearly fell asleep while she was reading.' "'I will get tea at once,' Anastasia said, "'and then added, in a tone of fine unconcern, "'there's a gentleman waiting upstairs to see Mr. Westray.' "'My dear,' Miss Jolliffe explained deprecatingly, "'how could you let anyone in when I was not at home? "'It is exceedingly dangerous with so many doubtful characters about.' There is Mr. Westray's presentation inkstand, and the flower picture for which I have been offered so much money. Valuable paintings are often cut out of their frames. One never has an idea what thieves may do.' There was the faintest trace of a smile around Anastasia's lips. "'I do not think we need trouble about that, dear Aunt Feemy, because I am sure he is a gentleman. Here is his card. Look.' She had in Miss Jolliffe the insignificant little piece of white cardboard— that held so momentous a secret, and watched her aunt put on her spectacles to read it. Miss Jolliffe focused on the card. There were only two words printed on it, only Lord Blandamer, in the most unpretending and simple characters, but their effect was magical. Doubt and suspicion melted suddenly away, and a look of radiant surprise overspread her countenance, such as it would have become a Constantine at the vision of the labarum. She was a thoroughly unworldly woman, thinking little of the things of this life in general, and keeping her affections on that which is to come, with the constancy and realisation that is so often denied to those possessed of larger temporal means. Her views as to right and wrong were defined and inflexible. She would have gone to the stake most cheerfully rather than violate them, and unconsciously lamented perhaps that civilization had robbed the faithful of the luxury of burning. Yet with all this were inextricably bound up certain little weaknesses among which figured a fondness for great names and a somewhat exaggerated consideration for the lofty ones of this earth. Had she been privileged to be within the same four walls as a peer at a bazaar or missionary meeting, she would have revelled in a great opportunity. But to find Lord Blandamer under her own roof was a grace so wondrous and surprising as almost to overwhelm her. Lord Blandamer, she faltered, as soon as she had collected herself a little. "'I hope Mr. Westray's room was tidy. I dusted it thoroughly this morning, but I wish he had given some notice of his intention to call. I'd be so vexed if he found anything dusty. What is he doing, Anastasia? Did he say he would wait till Mr. Westray came back?' "'He said he would write a note for Mr. Westray. I found him writing things.' "'I hope you gave his lordship Mr. Westray's presentation inkstand.' "'No, I did not think of that.' "'but there was the little black inkstand and plenty of ink in it.' "'Dear me! dear me!' Miss Jolliffe said, ruminating on so extraordinary a position. "'To think that Lord Blandaham, who no one has ever seen, should have come to Colerne at last, and is now in this very house! I will just change this bonnet for my Sunday one,' she added, looking at herself in the glass, "'and then tell his lordship how very welcome he is, and ask him if I can get anything for him. He was here at once—' from my bonnet, that I have only just returned, otherwise it would appear to him very remiss of me not to have paid him my respects before. Yes, I think it is undoubtedly more fitting to appear in a bonnet.' Anastasia was a little perturbed at the idea of her aunt's interview with Lord Blandamer. She pictured to herself Miss Jolliffe's excess of zeal, the compliments which he would think it necessary to shower upon him, the marked attention and homage which he might interpret as servility, though it was only intended as a proper deference to exalted rank. Anastasia was quite unaccountably anxious that the family should appear to the distinguished visitor in as favourable a light as possible, and thought for a moment of trying to persuade Miss Jolliffe that there was no need for her to see Lord Blandamer at all, unless he summoned her. But she was of a philosophic temperament, and in a moment had rebuked her own folly. What could any impression of Lord Blandamer's matter to her? She would probably never see him again, unless she opened the door when he went out. Why should he think anything at all about a commonplace lodging-house and its inmates? And if such trivial matters did ever enter his thoughts, a man so clever as he would make allowance for those of a different station to himself, and would see what a good woman her aunt was, in spite of any little mannerisms. So she made no remonstrance, but sat heroically quiet in her chair and reopened Northanger Abbey with a determination to entirely forget Lord Blandaber and the foolish excitement which his visit had created. End of chapter 7